I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we'll be continuing this morning in our series in 1 Corinthians. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 to 13. Verses 1 to 13 of chapter 10. If you don't have your uh, Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you uh, to grab one of the Bibles that's underneath the chair in front of you or maybe on the chair uh, that you're or beside you in another chair, uh, depending on where you're sitting, and uh, you'll find our passage on page 957, 957. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I will begin reading for us in verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all baptized, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it, is, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We not, must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the song that we just sung, and God, we ask now for grace, more grace to trust you. Father, as we come to you now in your word, we call out to you, we cry out to you that you'd help us. Father, we just sense, I know that I sense that there's so much possibility when we gather together around your word to hear you speak to us from the scriptures. And Father, we don't want to waste that. And Lord, we confess that we are weak and frail in and of ourselves. To understand your word, to speak it clearly, to hear it, to receive it. So Father, we ask for your help. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace not only to ask, but to trust, to believe that you love to provide for us, your children. And so provide for us in these moments, we pray. Meet us in your word. And Lord, do great things for your glory. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. We've been walking through this series in 1 Corinthians and in chapters 8 through 10, Paul is addressing the matter of meat sacrificed to idols. So in the city of Corinth, it was common because it was a pagan city and worship of idols was prevalent. It was common for folks to gather together in temples to worship pagan gods and for sacrifices to be offered in worship to these gods. 
And as those sacrifices were offered, then the meat that remained would be eaten. It would be eaten oftentimes in celebration and in worship to these pagan gods. And so there's a debate in the Corinthian church as you have this new church, this church of new Christians. There's a debate, should the Christians there in Corinth be eating this meat or should they refrain from it? And so Paul takes some time in chapters 8 through 10 to address this matter. And essentially Paul says that if the meat is closely associated with a temple or with pagan worship, they should abstain, they should not eat. But if the meat, if you find it in the marketplace and you're just buying meat and you don't know where the meat came from, then you can buy it and you can eat it. You don't need to worry about it, you don't need to let it bother your conscience because you're not familiar with the background and you don't need to pursue where it came from. And we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come as Paul addresses that specifically. But as Paul addresses this matter of meat sacrificed to idols and whether the Christians should partake of it or whether they should not, whether they should attend these temples and be involved in what's going on in these temples, it raises an important question. And it raises the question of the validity of spiritual experience. What constitutes a true spiritual experience? What is it about a spiritual experience that makes it genuine and real and actually results in one experiencing eternal life? You know, we still live in a society today that by and large values spiritual experience. It's not uncommon to hear someone say, yeah, I believe I'm a spiritual person. And that can have a whole range of meanings, right? It might mean if someone says, I'm a spiritual person, it might mean that they regularly check their horoscope. It might mean that they believe there's an afterlife. It might mean that at some time they've encountered some religious text and they were moved by it. It might mean that someone believes that they possess a guardian angel. It could mean a whole host of things. There's a whole range of things that it might mean. But generally speaking in our culture, if someone says they're a spiritual person, whatever that means, whatever you might fill that up with in terms of content, we tend to say, oh, that's a good thing. You know, even in the church today, there's a sense that spiritual experience, if somehow it's related to Jesus or the Bible, must be a good thing. Whether someone's been in church before, or maybe someone's professed to believe in Jesus as their Savior before, whatever it, whatever it might be, that, that that must be a good thing. And sometimes the assumption is that if someone claims a spiritual experience, or if someone has had some kind of spiritual experience in the past, that guarantees that one has peace with God and will experience eternal life with God. Now, what I just described there might characterize some of you here this morning. Maybe you say, well, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. What I want to show you from our passage this morning is that Paul, in these verses, Paul is arguing that that assumption is actually misguided and false. And what Paul shows us in these verses this morning is a group of people, an example of people in the Bible who had significant, even miraculous spiritual experiences, yet they fell under the judgment of God. And so Paul gives us direction this morning in terms of how to discern what is a 
false spiritual experience and what is a true and genuine spiritual experience that leads to eternal life. With that in mind, I want us to see from our text this morning that faith in Christ, and this is what Paul will show us, that faith in Christ and obedience to Christ are the evidences of true Christian experience. Faith in Christ and obedience to Christ are the evidences of true Christian experience. Let's see this first of all as as we walk through our passage. We're going to look at the first section under this heading of spiritual experience and the judgment of God. Spiritual experience and the judgment of God. Look there in verses 1 to 5 and we read these words. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, when Paul says our fathers, he's making a reference there to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And then in verses 1 through 5, all the images that Paul appeals to here in these verses are references to the Israelites' exodus from Egyptian bondage and slavery. Many of you are familiar with this story from the Old Testament. But one thing worth noting here is that the New Testament authors like Paul and the other writers of the New Testament scriptures saw in the Exodus, in this historical event that took place with Israel, they saw a foreshadowing of the ultimate redemption that would come in Jesus. So as Israel had been physically delivered from the bondage of Pharaoh and from the slavery of Egypt, so... Jesus would come as a greater deliverer and deliver his people from the bondage of sin, from the slavery of sin and death. And we see that clearly in this text because Paul is paralleling what happened to to the folks in the Exodus, to the Israelites in the Exodus, with what has happened to the Corinthian Christians. So we see in verse 1, he says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Some of y'all know this story. Many of you do. I'm sure that in the Old Testament, we remember that Israel was under bondage to Egypt. They were in slavery, but God in his mercy and grace, he sent ten plagues. And the ten plagues were used by God to break Pharaoh's heart. So that Pharaoh finally said to the people of Israel, Okay, you're free. You can go. But once, once Pharaoh let the people go, then he, had a, he hardened his heart again and he changed his mind and he gathered up his army and he started to pursue Israel to capture them again and to enslave them. And so Israel finds themselves now as they've left Egypt, Israel finds themselves trapped. They find themselves behind them is the Egyptian army and Pharaoh pursuing them and in front of them is the Red Sea and they have nowhere to go. But God in his mercy and grace sends a wind. And the wind is so powerful that it parts the Red Sea. And the people of God are able to cross on dry land. And then as the Egyptians seek to follow them, to pursue them, God removes the wind and the sea crashes down on the Egyptians and they die. This is what Paul is referencing here when he says, Our fathers all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea. God miraculously delivered them and saved them from Egypt. But not only that, after they had passed through the Red Sea, God continued in his grace and mercy to lead them and guide them. 
So in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, we read that the people, as they were going about their travels, were led by God with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And that's what Paul is speaking of here when he says that they, they were all under the cloud. That's the cloud that's being referenced there and all passed through the sea. And Paul sees here very clearly that Israel's physical deliverance and salvation from Egypt is a picture of the greater salvation that has come in Jesus. Notice Paul continues this theme in verse 2 when he says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what does it mean that the Israelites were baptized into Moses? Essentially, the idea here is that baptism is a way of, of, of identifying one with someone else. So, so Moses was their spiritual leader. And what Paul is saying here is that they were, because Moses was their spiritual leader, there's a very real sense in which they were identified with him. They were bound to him. And he's obviously making a parallel here to Christian baptism. That when one becomes a Christian and one is baptized into Christ, as they were baptized into Moses, we are identified with Jesus. We are bound to him as our Lord and as our leader. Not only that, but Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. In other words, not only did God deliver them and save them from bondage and from slavery, but then as they were continuing on and going to this destination that God had promised them, to the promised land, to Canaan, God continued to sustain them by his grace. He provided them with spiritual food and spiritual drink. So there were times in the wilderness when they were without food and God miraculously provided them manna from heaven. There was times in the wilderness when they were without drink and God miraculously provided for them, giving them water from a rock. And many believe, and, and I think this is true, that Paul here, having spoken to baptism previously, is now drawing a parallel to the Lord's Supper. When Christians gather together to take the bread and the cup of the Lord's table, and we are reminded again and again of Christ's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And we are spiritually nourished and sustained as we are reminded of God's provision for us in Christ. Notice Paul goes on to say in verse 4, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now this is interesting because there was a tradition that had developed over time that said as Israel went through the wilderness and, and as they were traveling to the promised land, that there was a physical rock that followed them around. And the reason this tradition evolved is because when we read of the wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament, the rock is mentioned at the beginning of their wanderings, and then it's mentioned again at the end of their wanderings. And so this tradition developed, well, it must have followed them all around. Well, Paul actually seems to take this tradition... And he alters it. And Paul essentially says, yes, there was constant provision for them. And there was a rock that was providing for them. But it wasn't a physical rock that, that traveled with them and followed them all around. But the rock was Christ himself. The pre-existent Christ who has existed for all eternity. Who was constantly with them and providing for them and sustaining them all along their way. Now... We talked about at the beginning that Paul 
Paul is addressing here in these verses the matter of spiritual experiences. Let me tell you, on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you think this ranks as far as spiritual experiences might be concerned? Here is a group of people that have been miraculously delivered by God. They have seen the Red Sea open up for them. They have seen the Egyptian army swallowed up in a moment. They have been led by Moses himself. They have received spiritual food from heaven. They have seen water come out of a rock so that they might live and not die. And notice what Paul says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And most of them, when Paul says most of them there, that is one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. Because you know only two of them entered into the promised land? Joshua and Caleb. Every single other one was left in the wilderness. They died under the judgment of God. And what is Paul saying to us here? Paul is saying to us here that all spiritual experiences, even all quote-unquote Christian spiritual experiences, are not real or legitimate. And Paul is specifically saying to the Corinthians, listen, church in Corinth, if you insist on continuing to participate in pagan worship and in idolatry, be careful because your end can be the same end as the Israelites. You yourself can fall under the judgment of God. And if the Corinthians were to protest and they were to say, but listen, Paul, don't you know? You, you saw Jesus himself. He appeared to you. You're an apostle. And you came to us in Corinth and you preached the gospel with power. And we heard it and, and, and we received it and we were baptized. And we're taking the Lord's Supper. And you saw how God miraculously moved when you were in Corinth and a church was established. And Paul would say, yes, Israel experienced many things just like that. And they all perished. They all perished. Spiritual experience, even Christian spiritual experience is always, is not always legitimate or genuine. My friends, this is, this is something that the Bible regularly teaches over and over again in so many different ways. And, and just something, as a, as a pastor in the South, is something that I'm just burdened to point out in the Scriptures over and over again because we live in a society and in a culture in which Christian, quote-unquote, Christian spiritual experience is rather common. But Paul would have us to know that just because you attended a church before, just because you've been baptized, or just because you were confirmed, or just because your family is religious, does not mean that you yourself have peace with God or will experience everlasting life. And so we need to be warned. And not only do we need to be warned, but my friends, we need to be instructed in terms of how we minister to others. 
I mean, we, we need to remember, as Paul demonstrates for us here, that if folks are living in persistent rebellion against God, if folks have no interest in Christ or in biblical or in the Bible or in the truth or in honoring Jesus with their lives, we don't do them any favors by saying, no, no, don't worry. Remember, remember, you were confirmed when you were 12 years old in the church. We don't do anybody any favors by doing that. In fact, we may be sealing their judgment. And so Paul in these first five verses points us to the reality of spiritual experience and the judgment of God. In the next section, verses 6 through 11, we see the necessity of obedience in the Christian's life. The necessity of obedience in the Christian's life. Look there in verses 6 through 11 and we read these words. Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, one of the things that we should see here right away in verse 6 is that the example of the Israelites here that Paul is laying out before us in verses 1 through 5, it, the example is not to condemn us. And, and that's not, in fact, even as Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he, he's not He's not pointing them to this example in order that he might condemn them. He's pointing them to this example so that they might learn from it, so that they might benefit from it for their good. And, and that's how we should approach this as well. As we look at the example of the Israelites in the Old Testament, God's intention is not to judge us or condemn us. He's wanting to help us. It's for us. So that, as he states in verse 6, we might not desire evil as they did. And then Paul highlights four sins, four sins that mark the Israelites in their wanderings. And the first sin is idolatry. You see it there in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now this is a reference to Exodus 32 when the people of Israel uh, were um, waiting on Moses actually. He was meeting uh, with the Lord on Mount Sinai, and they were waiting for Moses. They became impatient, and they fashioned for themselves a golden calf. And they worshipped the golden calf, and as a result, fell under the judgment of God. But it is interesting, as Paul looks back on that experience, or that event in Exodus 32, Paul could have cited any number of passages or verses from that chapter. He could have talked about how they worshipped the false god, or how they... Um, how they crafted this idol and how that was wrong. He, he could have taken any number of different angles or perspectives on this event. But Paul only cites one verse from Exodus 32 in our passage here. And he actually cites the one verse that speaks of them eating and drinking before this idol. You see it there, Exodus 32, 6. Paul cites it here in verse 7 of our chapter. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, why do you think Paul chose that verse? 
Well, Paul chose that verse because he was particularly concerned with the Corinthians' propensity to be involved in idolatrous worship by eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And so Paul specifically makes this point. But you know, what, what we read here in verse 7, what we read here, we need to take note of this because given the propensity, as we mentioned before in our society, to just kind of broadly embrace spiritual experience, no matter where it's coming from or what the content of that experience is, we might think that the Israelites' worship of this golden calf would have been a good thing. I mean, if all spiritual experience is good, if all spiritual experience leads to good things, then isn't it a good thing that the Israelites had this spiritual experience in the wilderness? And of course, what the Old Testament scriptures teach us is no, that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, demands singular and undivided devotion. And this is taught over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And what Paul is teaching us here in Corinthians is that it is the same in the New Testament. It's the same for Jesus. So don't get this idea that, well, in the Old Testament, you know, God was kind of narrow and and he only wanted people to worship him. But now that Jesus has come, things have just really opened up. And we see that there's there's, um, spiritual benefit in all types of religions and spiritual experiences. No. In fact, what Paul says here is that just as the God of the Old Testament was jealous for singular and undivided devotion, so is Jesus. And true spiritual experience is found in Christ and Christ alone. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, listen, if you go to the pagan temples and you involve yourself in pagan worship and you involve yourself in devotion to pagan gods, you have ceased to be a follower of Christ. You cannot worship at the church and at the pagan temple. You cannot eat at the table of the Lord, taking his body and his blood and eat at the table of pagan gods. The second sin is sexual immorality. The first one's idolatry. The second one is sexual immorality. Look there in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. It's common knowledge that in ancient religions, the worship of pagan gods and sexual immorality went hand in hand. Uh, This was true when they uh, worshiped the golden calf in the wilderness, because actually in the previous verse, in verse 7, when it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, basically all commentators agree that that phrase there, rose up to play, is an ancient euphemism for sexual immorality. So the worship of the golden calf involved sexual immorality. But then this reference here in verse 8, to not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day, is a reference to Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, where the people of Israel there uh, begin to engage in sexual immorality with the Moabites, and they begin to worship their gods. And as a result, as Paul states here, the judgment of God came upon the people of Israel. And this was... very similar to the temptation that Corinth faced. Because Corinth, in Corinth, the church existed in a culture in which the people worshipped a pagan god named Aphrodite. And one of the ways that you worshipped this god was you were to go to the temple, and at the temple there were temple prostitutes. 
And by engaging in sexual acts with the temple prostitutes, the god Aphrodite was honored. And so you get a sense here for pagan worship, and you get a sense of what Paul's talking about here. In pagan worship, sacrifices and feasting, eating and drinking and getting intoxicated, and then engaging in sexual immorality, all of those things went hand in hand. And Paul is saying we must, we must as followers of Christ avoid these things. The third sin that they fell into was trying God or testing God. You see it there in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This actually is a reference to Numbers chapter 21 when The people of God spoke against God and spoke against Moses. And they said in Numbers 21 verse 5, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. So they didn't like the manna they were getting from God. And you know what they craved? You know what they wanted so bad? Meat. They wanted the meat that they had enjoyed in Egypt. And what was it that the Corinthians craved? Meat from the table of pagan gods. Notice the sin, that the fourth sin that they committed in verse 10. So idolatry, sexual immorality, t- trying or testing God, and then fourth, grumbling in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is a reference here to Numbers chapter 16 in which Koran, who was an individual and then several other men with him, rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And as a result, the judgment of God came upon these men. But when the judgment of God came upon these men, the people of God, the Israelites, were not happy. In fact, in Numbers chapter 16, verse 41, they said, we read there, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Who are the people of the Lord that they're referring to? They're referring to Koran and, and these other men who had rebelled against Moses. Had Moses killed them? No, God had. God had brought his judgment upon the people. As a result of their grumbling and complaining, God sent another plague upon the, Eve, the people, and we read that 14,700 people died. Commentators believe that possibly Paul is alluding to this event because the Corinthians, like the Israelites, are tempted in this situation to grumble and complain against Paul and to resist his counsel rather than to yield and to follow his godly wisdom. Notice there, though, again in verse 11. So these are the four sins. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, grumbling and complaining. Notice there in verse 11 again, though, what Paul has to say. He says there in verse 11, Now these things, similar to what he said in verse 6, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So again, these things were recorded for us. They were recorded for our good. And what is it? What is it that we're to learn from them? What is it that we're to take from this? What is it that would be so beneficial for us to see? 
What's so helpful for us to see is that all spiritual experience is not the same. That there is such a thing as spiritual experience that actually leads to the judgment of God. Because here are people who had many spiritual experiences. But although they had many and miraculous spiritual experiences, the trials and the testings of the wilderness proved that their hearts had never been changed. They still worshipped idols. They still were involved in pagan worship. They still gave themselves to sexual immorality and sexual orgies. And their hearts were marked, rather than by gratitude and thankfulness, they were marked by complaining and grumbling. And Paul says they fell under the judgment of God. Now Paul here, nor the Bible, is looking for perfection in one who has genuinely had a spiritual experience. But as Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, we are saved by grace alone, but grace that saves is never alone. In other words, the grace that saves us changes us. And it produces fruit, it produces works, it produces evidence of a life that's been changed by the gospel. These words here, obviously, that Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth serve as a warning. But let me just also say that as we think about what Paul is saying here, it also can serve as an encouragement. And it should serve as an encouragement for those of you who are not perfect by any means, none of us are, but have truly tasted and experienced the power of the gospel. Nathan Finn, who's a modern church historian, writes these words, quote, Do you struggle with the assurance of salvation because you don't remember all the details of your conversion, baptism, etc.? Billy Graham used to say that he didn't remember the day he was born, but that he knew he was alive. Listen to this. Present faith, not past decisions, are evidence that we've been born of the Spirit. Present faith, not past decisions, are evidence that we have been born of the Spirit. And see, here's the deal. I know that in a room this large, there are probably some people here this morning who have little to no fruit in your life. Like, like you, you have... If you're honest with yourself, you really don't have a desire for Christ. You really don't have a desire to honor Him with your life. You really don't have a desire for spiritual things. There's been no change in your life, but you have great confidence that you are at peace with God, and when this life is over, you're going to be okay because of some past experience. And there are others here this morning who you are not perfect, and man, you struggle, and you stumble, and you fall, but you genuinely want to know Christ. You're trusting in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're trusting in Him alone, and when you do sin, you're eager to confess it to Him, and you're, you're seeking Him in the Word, and you're seeking Him in prayer. You, don't, you, don't, you miss some days, but man, you want to be faithful to seek God and to know Him. And you are riddled with doubt and insecurity because you can't remember the exact day that you trusted in Christ or how it happened or when it happened. 
And Paul is saying, that's backwards. That's upside down. Present faith, not past decisions, are evidence that we've been born of the Spirit. What Paul so longs for with the Corinthians is not so much that they would be able to point back to some past experience, but that with idolatry and sexual immorality and all these things coming to them in their own culture and in their own context and present situation, they would say, no, I'm following Christ. That's the evidence of one who's been born again. That's the evidence of genuine Christian experience. So what are they to do? And this is our last point. There's two applications here. How are they to respond? And this is found in verses 12 to 13. So the Corinthians obviously are facing a similar trial and temptation as the Israelites did in the Exodus wanderings. Paul's been spending, what is this, like 10 verses now, drawing the parallels. Corinth, church in Corinth, You're in the same boat. You're facing the same trials. You're facing the same temptations. So how are they to respond? And Paul says, listen, they're not to respond in rebellion and disobedience by placing confidence in some past experience. Rather, they are to respond with humility and confidence. With humility before God and confidence in God. Look at verse 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the first thing is there should be humility. We see this in verse 12. And one of the ways that we respond in humility is to recognize what Paul is saying in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone, this applies to everybody, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. See, if there's anyone, any one of us who thinks, oh, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good spiritually. I'm okay. I'm going to be fine You need to be warned. You need to be warned. Because pride prevents us from seeing and discerning our true spiritual state. So if you're here this morning and you're not not a Christian, let me ask you, do you have some false assurance in a previous spiritual experience? It's evident from our passage this morning that all spiritual experiences are not the same. That true spiritual experience is based on the reality of who Jesus is as the scriptures present him to us. And so the question is, have you genuinely trusted in him as your savior? Have you submitted to him as Lord? Is there evidence in your life that you've been changed by the gospel and that you're growing in grace? And if you're a Christian, are you taking heed? Are you humbly depending upon Christ in your life? Listen, the Corinthians had confidence. In fact, that's, that's, that's part of their problem. I'm going to say in just a few moments we need to have confidence, right? But part of the problem with the Corinthians is that they have confidence. It's just confidence in themselves. Confidence in past experiences. 
rather than a present confidence in God and all that he is for them in Christ. And so we need to have a humility before God, not an arrogant and misguided confidence in ourselves. It reminds us of Peter, right? You remember Peter when just before he denied Jesus three times? And Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to fall away from me. And what does Peter say? Peter says, yeah, I'm sure some of them will, but Jesus, you can count on me. There's no way I'm falling. And what does Jesus say? This night, Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, Jesus, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And of course, that night, he denied Jesus three times. It's essentially the truth of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And what are the signs, if we are believers, what are the signs that we're beginning to get prideful and we're not humble and dependent upon the Lord? There can be many things that, that point to this. One, one is maybe we just stop attending churches regularly. I don't, I don't really need that. I can do without that. I don't need to be consistently under the word and in fellowship with other believers. Maybe we, we, we stop reading our Bible and we start communing with Christ in prayer. We start, stop calling out to him, just feeling our dependence upon him moment by moment. I mean, I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it over and over again. When it comes to the disciplines of the faith, like being in the scriptures and praying and attending worship services and that sort of thing, it's not so much about discipline as it is desperation. If you feel that you're desperate, if you feel that you are needy, that you can't make it without God one moment or you'll fall flat on your face, you're going to be much more inclined to be consistent and faithful in communing with Christ. So the first response is to be humble, to recognize our own spiritual weakness and to take heed lest we think we cannot fall. The second response is to be confident, to be confident. Look there in verse uh, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this is mainly, these verses that we've been looking at are mainly a warning passage. But Paul actually doesn't end with a warning. He actually ends with hope. And this is encouraging because some people, yes, are overconfident, but then there are other people who are overwhelmed by insecurity in a sense that I can never make it in this Christian life. And for those of you who find yourself in that situation, Paul here has a word of encouragement and hope to you, for you. In verse 12, he says, no temptation has overcome, overtaken you that is not common to man. It is likely that the Corinthians, part of the temptation they're facing here is that if they remove themselves from the worship of these pagan gods and from eating this meat, if they remove themselves from that, it's so ingrained in the culture of Corinth that they will be ostracized and shunned by family and friends. And so you can imagine they begin to think to themselves, well, how, how can I deal with it? How can I make this? If, if, if I'm cut off from family and friends, how can I sustain myself? How can I bear this? How can I cope with this? This is actually not uncommon for new Christians. 
And some of you may be wrestling with this even now. I remember when the Lord changed my life when I was a junior in high school. One of the things that was so difficult for me in that time was was dealing with the reality that if I was genuinely going to follow Christ, some of my friends were going to have to change. And all the implications of what that meant. And so the Corinthians are wrestling with this and they're dealing with this. But look at what what Paul says here in verse 12. He says, first of all, don't think this is unusual. Don't think no one's ever gone through this before. And then he says in verse 13, God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and by extension what he's saying to us this morning is that whatever temptation and whatever trial you might find yourself in, it will not be too difficult for you because God is faithful. He will sustain you. He will help you. He will keep you. And so our final hope is not in our willpower. Our final hope is not in our moral resolve or our tenacity or even our humility. But our final hope is in God. That when we find ourselves in that trial, when we find ourselves being tempted, that God will be with us and God will help us and God will meet us in that place. Notice notice what God promises for us in that moment. You see it there in verse 13. He promises that with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, we think way of escape, right? We think, oh, great, I won't have to to deal with it. I'll be out, right? Like this trial, this temptation, I'll no longer experience it. But that's actually not what Paul says, is it? The way of escape is actually having the grace to endure it while you cling to Jesus in faith and obedience through it. That's the promise that God makes. Not that you'll always be delivered from the trial or the temptation and not have to experience, but that you'll have the grace to endure it and to be faithful to Jesus. In so doing, you will prove That by God's grace, by God's grace, you have truly experienced him. You've truly experienced his saving power. You've truly experienced the forgiveness of sins. You've truly experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've truly been changed by the gospel and you belong to him. Again, it's not perfection, but it's a distinction. It's a difference. It's a clear indication that something real has happened in your life. Let's pray and ask God that he would do that work in each one of us. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, that it's full of warnings and promises. And Father, I know that there are some here this morning, I imagine, who... We need to hear the warning. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have had false assurances of salvation but have really never come to know you and never truly given themselves to you. Father, I pray that you would make that clear and that today, this day, would be the day of salvation, that there would be a spiritual experience and it would be real and genuine and authentic. That would be evidenced by changed life. And Father, I pray for those of us who are on the journey of pursuing Christ and seeking to be faithful and to honor him with our lives. 
Lord, help us to be marked by this type of humility and confidence. It's desperately dependent upon you. And in our desperation, is fully confident that you will meet us in our need. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us so that when we do face the trials and temptations of life, we would not expect that we would be perfect, but Father, we would be faithful. Lord, do this work in us for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.